Your Bibles to the book of Colossians, book of Colossians chapter 4. We're getting towards the end of this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, and we'll be going through um, verses 5 to 6 of Colossians chapter 4. And um, I'm going to read for us in verse 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for guiding us over the past uh, several months in which we have looked at this letter. And as we are getting towards the end and these final instructions, help us to receive them, help us to understand them. Help us to apply them to our lives. And Lord, please be with me as I speak your word. Pray that my words would be your words, that your words would go forth in power and precision and clarity and truth. Impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now there's some, some hard truths which I have to speak this morning. And I must speak them because the word of God demands that they be spoken. And they're here in this passage that we've just read. And uh, over the past few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about spiritual disciplines. About those clear commands in scripture which we are called to live out in our day-to-day lives. And they're called disciplines, um, not, because, not so much because that's what the word of God calls them, um, in the scriptures or commands, but um, many uh, uh, pastors, theologians, um, authors have called them spiritual disciplines because they're not always easy to do, which is why we must discipline ourselves into making them habits in our lives. And the Apostle Paul, he writes about spiritual disciplines in all of his letters, as he does here, those things that we see throughout the New Testament, such as gathering to worship and fellowship, showing hospitality and serving, giving and stewardship of our resources, uh, Bible study and prayer and evangelism, which is probably the hardest spiritual discipline of all, sharing the gospel. However, for some reason, uh, over the past few weeks, as I've been thinking about the spiritual disciplines, I've been thinking about the easiest ones in the Christian life and why it is that some believers are inconsistent in carrying out the easiest of those disciplines, which are gathering to worship and giving, just coming to church and giving back to God a small portion of what he has given to you as an act of worship. And I, I say that not to, um, to point out somebody, though, if, um, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. 
so to speak. So I say that because I've been thinking a lot about my own giving lately. Uh, we, we've you know, been here a little over six months, and we recently moved. And with moving comes you know, uh, a whole lot of things in, in watching the budget and um, expenses, which you did not see. And, and so uh, we were kind of light in our giving. But now, after a while, we see our budget a little bit more clearly. And I've been convicted that um, I can give more. I can give more. I can do more. And not that I necessarily have to give more, but I can. I can give more. And uh, I can give more and still live comfortably. But just thinking about my own giving, that got me thinking about all the other spiritual disciplines, which are all just a matter of giving. All the spiritual disciplines are, are just a matter of giving, whether it be your time, your energy, your abilities, or material possessions. All spiritual disciplines are a matter of giving up something to God. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Christian life is a life of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, of emulating Christ. And you know, when you think about the spiritual disciplines, the two easiest ones are coming to church and giving. Just showing up. Just giving. It's so easy. Why would you not come to church? It's a privilege. If, if you can, and I know there's several people that have health issues, there's, there's job issues, um, but if you can, if there's no other, nothing hindering you, why would you not come to church? It's a privilege. That's the, that's the easiest thing to do in the Christian life is just show up. It doesn't require much from you. And why would you not give back to God what he has given you? For the advancement of his kingdom. And I know there are several churches, several bad churches, who twist these clear commands of giving for their own gain. But nonetheless, we're still called to give. Even if it's only a small amount. Even if it's a dollar a week. Because that has an effect on our hearts. And I started speaking about the easiest spiritual disciplines of coming to church and giving, not just because I've been thinking about them, but because usually there's a correlation. If you're not doing the easiest things in the Christian life, you're definitely not going to do the hardest things. There's usually a correlation. And this is really what this morning's message is all about. Probably the hardest thing to do in the Christian life is right here from this passage in Colossians 4, 5 to 6. It's what it's all about. Witnessing, evangelism, sharing our faith. Which is definitely the hardest spiritual discipline because it, it kind of goes hand in hand with loving your neighbor as yourself. Which is why so few Christians do it. I think it's, it's one of the hardest spiritual disciplines for several reasons. Primarily because our 
three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are all opposed to the gospel being proclaimed. Also, because many of us don't do it because we're not good at it. And we're not good at it because we don't do it. It goes hand in hand. It's like anything else you do in life. Finally, um, I believe that evangelism is one of the hardest spiritual disciplines and commands to obey in the Christian life because it's the most important. It's the most important. What can be more important than telling another sinful human being how they can be forgiven of all their sins and escape from the just wrath of God which is hanging over their heads? And will be poured out upon all unconverted and unredeemed sinners for all eternity in hell. What can be more important? What can be more important than telling sinners that there is a Savior? A Savior who is willing and able to forgive them of all their sins. And give them eternal life. If they would repent from their sins and believe upon Him as Lord and Savior. What can be more important This is why the Apostle Paul said, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And you know what's frightening? And probably the most reprehensible things I have ever seen in the church is believers and even pastors discouraging other believers from doing evangelism. And usually because they feel that they're not doing it right. But more often than not, is because they feel convicted that another believer is doing what they ought to do as well. But rather than take responsibility for their own disobedience to proclaim the gospel, they would rather explain away their guilt by telling another believer they're doing it wrong. Or that they don't, they, they don't have to proclaim the gospel. You just have to invite people to church. Or you, you just have to be nice. Or you just have to be kind. If Paul said, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, then I think that you could pronounce a double woe on someone who discourages or hinders a believer from preaching the gospel. And if you've ever discouraged somebody from preaching the gospel or from doing evangelism or hindered somebody, in that moment you've been a pawn of Satan. You need to repent. Evangelism is hard. It's probably the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. That's why so few people do it. But it must be done. It's the most important thing. What can be more important than telling somebody how they can be forgiven, how they can escape from the wrath of God, escape from hell, enjoy heaven forever? What can be more important? And this is why Paul asks for prayer here in verses 2 to 4 and tells the Colossians to pray continuously because the context of these five verses right here from verse 2 to 6 is is all about evangelism. It's all about our witness. And because evangelism is hard and seemingly impossible at times, We need prayer. We need to pray always. If if we go out and evangelize somebody or, or the opportunity presents itself, we need to pray before, during, and after. 
We need to pray for others who go out and evangelize. We need to pray for preachers and and missionaries who evangelize. Anybody who proclaims the gospel, we need to pray for them. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil is all opposed to that. So many times I've gone out to evangelize, and up until about a half hour, a few minutes before I go, I can think of a hundred other things that I'd rather be doing. Some of the greatest evangelists would say, honestly, I have to drag myself to do this. Because my flesh resists it. Because I know there's opposition. But it must be done. That's why we're here. Because there's a Savior who saved us, and we must go tell other people about this. Greatest news in the world, the greatest news in all of creation, we must share it. We can't keep it to ourselves. That's why Paul asks for prayer. Even the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest evangelist in the history of the Christian church, asks for prayer continually, not just here but in Ephesians. Asks for prayer from the church that, that he would be bold, that he would not shrink back in fear. That he would proclaim the gospel, not just proclaim it, but proclaim it in a way which he ought to proclaim it. Faithfully, clearly. He says here in verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, so pray for me. And then he shifts from him to the church. And how they are to be faithful in evangelism. And in this passage, in these uh, two verses, Paul gives us two commands by which we are to faithfully exercise this spiritual discipline of evangelism. These are two commands that, if we follow, will make us more effective and more faithful in our witness to a dead and dying world. First, we are to walk wisely. We are to walk wisely. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. When it says outsiders, everybody that is outside of the church. It could be translated um, unbelievers. But it, it is more literal. It is outsiders. But that, that's everybody that is outside of the church. That is everybody that is outside of the faith. We are to walk in wisdom toward them. And we are to walk wisely in two ways. First, by being wise with outsiders, being wise with them. As he says in the beginning of verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, which begins by being wise ourselves and seeking wisdom in our own lives. If we are to be wise with outsiders, we must begin with being wise ourselves. And the, you know, all throughout the scriptures, mainly, there, there is wisdom literature in the scripture. It's a genre of scripture Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, Job, um, many portions of the Psalms that is clearly um, principles of wisdom, which we are to apply to our lives. Uh, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, he, he wrote the Proverbs primarily for, for young men, for his sons, but for young people in general, so that they would be wise. It's almost like a Jewish catechism. So they wouldn't be fools. They would be wise young men and women. And he begins 
um, explaining in Proverbs chapter 1 the purpose for the, the, the whole book and why he has compiled all these Proverbs, the wisdom which God had given him by uh, answer of his prayer as he first became king. And, and in Proverbs 1.7, we, we know this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Or you know, some translations would say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts there. Fearing the Lord. We fear the Lord understanding that there is a God who has created all of us, all things. And by virtue of being um, the creator of all things and we being his creation, we are accountable to him. We're responsible for how we live and therefore we should fear him. And that's the beginning of wisdom. So all wisdom flows from that. From fearing the Lord. From understanding that we are accountable to him. Therefore we should live wisely. And especially as believers who have been saved from our sins. We should walk wisely. We should be wise people. We shouldn't act like fools. And you know if we're honest with ourselves, there, there may be a little bit of foolishness in all of us. And we're all on this uh, spectrum of growth, growing in holiness, growing in wisdom. And there's still a bit of unredeemed um, flesh and, and sin within us. But we need to put that away. You know, it, it's one thing to see, you know, teenagers or young adults, adults acting foolish. It's another thing to see a 30, 40, 50 year old person acting foolish. You know, we need to continue to strive to be wise. John MacArthur writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says this What believers are gives credibility to what they say. Wisdom involves properly evaluating circumstances and making godly decisions. Believers are to exhibit a carefully planned, consistent, righteous Christian life. If those who say they are believers live as fools, outsiders or unbelievers will denigrate the faith and shun the gospel. Only if believers live wisely will the watching world see the power of God at work in them. We, we can probably, you know, sad to say, but there's probably many of us who can remember times in our Christian lives in, in which we have um, been foolish and unbelievers have seen it. And we have um, may not have ruined our testimony completely, but we were a bad testimony in that moment. And that's a bad day. <laughs> it's something we need to be quick to repent about, quick to ask forgiveness for, quick to put away. People are watching us. We need to be wise. We need to be upright. We need to walk circumspectly. Also, by being wise in our work and our daily routines. We walk wisely by being wise in our work and our daily routines. In First uh, uh, Thessalonians, um, Paul gives these instructions, which um, he commends the Thessalonian church um, for their um, holiness, um, for their, their Christian behavior, but he, he calls them to excel still more. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verse 9, he says this. He says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So what he's saying there is, is their, their walk, their day-to-day lives, their, their, their act of, of Christian living, their work, everything about them should be an example to the unbelieving world. People should say, wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a person of character. That's a man of character. That's a woman of character. That's someone who is wise, who is thrifty, who is hardworking. And this is, in a sense, I mean, you, you could look at um, Israel itself. Israel was called to be a witness nation. In Deuteronomy chapter uh, 4, um, there's Israel's charter. And there, in a sense, um, God says, you know, if, if you obey all these laws, if you're careful to obey these laws, um, you know, the people around you will say, will say what, what sort of people is this who walk wisely and, and you know I'm paraphrasing but you can see that that's the purpose for um, Israel for the laws they are to be a witness nation they are to be separate they are called out they are to be different they're, and, and if they lived righteously and obediently to God's laws then they would have been a witness to all the nations around them and in a sense that still holds true for the church and as I said, you, you can probably think of times either in your own Christian life where you have failed to be a good testimony, you've been foolish at work, or, or you've seen another Christian who's failed to be a good testimony, and it, it's, it's sad, it's, it's humiliating. Um, probably, I, I remember one such instance um, when I was a new believer, and I was in college, and and. Um, I was in the National Guard and, and going through Army ROTC to become an officer and, and uh, you know, really uh, just wanted to be uh, a faithful and, and probably only been a believer a little over a year or so and, and getting involved in all sorts of ministries. And, and we had, a, there was a handful of believers in our Army ROTC group and we had a Bible study and we were encouraging one another and, and um, you know, trying to go out and witness and and just live faithfully. And there was one young man who um, was very bold in his witness. Very bold and, 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 and so much a, a little bit um, too bold. And uh, which is fine in a sense that he encouraged us. He convicted us. And, and um, we all wanted to be bold as well in our witnessing. But um, one thing he forgot is that... Um, there's this thing in the army and in the military in general called physical fitness. It's pretty important to be physically fit. Most people, it's, that's a given. Um, you know, I, I'm about to join the army or the military, and, and I should probably run and be physically fit and be strong. But for some reason, this young man didn't think that was that important. And so when it comes time to take our physical fitness test, um, he has not... Um, been diligent to um, run or to exercise and and so he has to pass after a few years of being in 
the program. Um, he should have known this by now, but now he has to pass or else he gets out of the pro he gets kicked out of the program. And so we're there and, and all our friends in this Bible study and we're encouraging one another and we're doing well, but this other young man, um, he's not doing so well. And because he was so bold in his witness, now all the other unbelievers around him are looking down at him and, and they're sneering at him. And I remember as he's trying to do push-ups, another unbeliever says, uh, and he's struggling and he's not going to make it, another unbeliever says, Jesus isn't going to help you now. And I remember him running around the track and, and just had to have another um, friend help him to pace him. And, and he's just saying, oh, God, oh, God. And, just, and he just ruins his testimony and humiliates the rest of us. And that's just one illustration. I'm sure um, I have more illustrations in my own life. I'm sure you have illustrations either personally or of another believer in a workplace who wasn't careful, who wasn't diligent, who wasn't wise. In that sense, they, they not only ruin their testimony, but they harm yours. Because now you're going to go and try to share the gospel. You need to walk wisely. And this is why Paul has talked about working heartily. Up in uh, chapter 3, verse 23. Lord, we, 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 um, I preached on that a couple weeks ago. That we need to work unto the Lord because people are, are watching. And, and if we walk wisely in, in seeking wisdom, in working wisely, then we, um, that flows to our interactions with unbelievers. It flows into our witness. So we're to walk wisely first by being wise um, with outsiders. And second... By being wise with your time. Being wise with your time. He says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders and then making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. And in this term, it, it could also be translated redeeming the time. As Ephesians 5.16, the parallel passage says, but it could also be translated in this, this verse, redeeming the time. The, the, the verb actually means to buy it back to redeem it, to buy it back, the time that you've wasted. Invest the time that you have left. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, this parallel passage, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. We live in an evil uh, world, evil world system. Corruption, the effects of the fall are all around us and even within us. And we need to make the most out of the time. And not only are the days evil, but they're getting more evil. They're getting worse. So we need to be wise in, with our time and making the best use of it. And because the days are evil, but more importantly, because our time is limited. Our time is limited. We have a limited amount of time, and, and the longer we live, the less we have. And we don't know how much we have, but we know that we have less. James says this in James chapter 4, uh, you know, concerning people who boast. 
James 4, 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And it's easier, you know, the older you get to see this. Because the years go faster. And it seems... It seems as if your life was, it just, it just went by. Can't believe it. You know, when you're young, you know, and you're five or you're 10, you're like, you got the whole world in front of you. But even then, you don't know how long you'll live. I've been blessed when, um, it was a, one of those blessings in disguise when I was younger. Um, my uh, older brother, he got cancer. He was in his teenage years, and um, during that whole whole ordeal, he survived, but I was able to go to um, these cancer camps with kids and see kids 7, 10, 12 with cancer, and and some of them probably didn't survive. Just be convicted. Just because I'm young doesn't mean I'll live until I'm 80. Life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. So we need to be wise with our time in making the best use of it because our time is limited. Also because we've already wasted too much of it. We've already wasted too much of our time. 1 Peter 4, he says this. Peter says this. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And there's probably many of us that we don't have a testimony of gross iniquity and gross sin. But nonetheless, we have a testimony of being saved from sin if we have been saved. And what Peter is saying is that the time that is past suffices for living in sin. And even if that sin is laziness, if it's uh, you know, bitterness, if it's rudeness, if it's um, gossip or slander, those respectable sins as Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, or if it's those sins of omission, not doing those clear commands which God calls us to, like not loving our neighbor as ourselves, not evangelizing, not giving, not serving. Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. He was talking about death. He was talking about the end of his life, but also the end of our lives. There is a time when um, our work is done. And yes, we, we, we're not to fear death as unbelievers do, because you know, if we've been saved, we have a glorious future. But nonetheless, at that time, our work is over. At that time, we will have finished the race. I know, um, you know there's that racing metaphor throughout Scripture, which Paul uses. Um, and many of us, 
we, we, we can't relate to that <laughs> because we don't run. I know I've, I've run a few races and every one of them, after I was finished, I knew that I probably could have run harder. I could have run faster. I could have gotten a better time. We can run faster. We can do more. We can make more of the time that we have left. Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon called The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. And uh, you can Google that. I, I would encourage you to read it. But I just want to read a small portion of it here. He says this. Christians should not only study to improve the opportunities they enjoy for their own advantage as those who would make a good bargain, but also labor to reclaim others from their evil courses, that so God might defer his anger and time might be redeemed from that terrible destruction, which when it should come would put an end to the time of divine patience. And it may be upon this account that this reason is added, because the days are evil. As if the apostle had said, the corruption of the times tends to hasten threatened judgments. But your holy and circumspect walk will tend to redeem time from the devouring jaws of those calamities. However, thus much is certainly held forth to us in the words, that upon time we should set a high value and be exceedingly careful that it be not lost. And we are therefore exhorted to exercise wisdom and circumspection in order that we may redeem it. And hence it appears that time is exceedingly precious. It's the only commodity, commodity that you can't get back. You can gain a fortune and lose it and, and, and somehow gain it back. You can um, uh, ruin relationships and, and through time and forgiveness and repentance somehow win them back. Almost anything in this world you can lose and gain back except for time. You can never get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. So we need to redeem it. And we redeem it by walking wisely, by making the best use of it. So we are to be faithful in our evangelism. First, by walking wisely. And second, by speaking graciously. To speak graciously. Verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to speak graciously, as he says, always. Always. And all of our speech should be gracious. And that implies that we should speak graciously to everyone. Everyone we meet. We should be gracious in our speech. Why? Because we've been shown an infinite measure of grace and salvation. But therefore, the, but therefore the grace of God go I. As it's been said oftentimes. We, we are saved by grace and grace alone. We, we don't deserve salvation. We can't merit it. We are gracious in our speech because we've been shown an infinite measure of grace and salvation. But also because we proclaim a gospel of grace. We proclaim a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works, not a gospel of cleaning yourself up, of lifting yourself up by your own bootstraps, but a gospel of divine grace. It's 
By grace you have been saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's no boasting. There's no boasting in the Christian life. Even in your giftings, even in your accomplishments, what, what do you have that you have not received? And if you've received it, why do you boast? There's no boasting. It's all of grace. E- even if we're, we, we happen to be the greatest evangelist that ever was, there's still no boasting. It's still all of grace. Whatever we do, it's all of grace. So we proclaim a gospel of grace. Therefore, we must speak graciously. Also, because we speak to people made in the image of God. You know, no, no matter how evil, how horrible, how wretched a person is, an unbeliever is, they're still made in the image of God. They're one of God's creations. The pinnacle of creation, so to speak, is mankind, created to worship God, yet fallen in sin, corrupted by sin, broken by sin. And when we see that brokenness in another person's life, Because of sin, because of their sin, because of other people sinning against them, because of their own idolatry, there should be, in a sense, um, a brokenness in our own hearts over them. Their brokenness should break our hearts with compassion. Because our Lord was compassionate. We are to be like Him. We are to speak graciously. Not um, contentious, not cantankerous. Second, we are to speak uh, graciously in purity and pleasantry. He says, uh, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. And, and we don't see it so much in our day and age because we, we have the blessings of, of all sorts of different types of food and spices and herbs and seasonings that salt is just a given. We, we don't think much about salt. But in the ancient world, salt was not only the primary seasoning to flavor your food, but it was also necessary because it was a preservative. It was a preservative. Uh, you know, some of us, we, we can um, think back a, a main, you know, uh, a thing in, in the Civil War times was salted pork. And even before that, a, a ration, how you would preserve salted fish. And it all... You know, back into the ancient world, you use salt meat or um, to preserve something. Salt was important so much so that even um, Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. That's where the term "he is not worth his salt" comes from. Because he's not a good worker, he's not worth the salt. He's not worth his labor, his wages, so to speak. And so. This is, in a sense, why Paul speaks of salt, why Jesus himself speaks of salt in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places in the Gospel. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 9, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And what, what he's saying is, you know, we are to be like we are the salt of the earth. Meaning we are, believers, are a preservative against the corruption of this world. As we expose evil through our conduct and through our speech. We, we, we are a check against the evil of this world, against evil proliferating. 
but we're also to be a seasoning. We're to be bold. We're to be uh, tasty. Salt is a flavor enhancer. We see, you know, if you look, uh, it's, it's pretty popular. You see uh, salted caramel, salted chocolate, salted this or that, because it enhances the flavor of the food. It draws it out. It's bold, and your body needs salt. Not too much, but you need salt. And so there's this flavorfulness of salt. And so there's, there's these two aspects, which our speech and our character are supposed to be salty, in that we are a preservative against evil, but we're also flavorful. We're pleasant. We're to... And, and, Pure and pleasant speech, if we are to speak graciously in, in, in purity and pleasantry, pure and pleasant speech begins with a pure and pleasant heart. As Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So if we are commanded to... Um, let our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, that begins with our heart. It begins with our hearts. Are our hearts gracious? Or do we want to do good? This is why Paul says in Colossians 3.16, further up, in all these commandments, all his instruction, they flow from one another. Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's, that's a pure and pleasant heart out of which pure and pleasant speech flows. We need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We need to fill our hearts and our minds with scripture. And then out of our heart will flow gracious speech. Proverbs, once again, uh, Proverbs 22.11 says this, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. He will have a great impact even on unbelieving kings. In just reading that proverb, 22.11, we can think of Joseph. We can think of Daniel. We can think of Nehemiah. All who were men of profound character and purity and holiness. And no doubt, because they had character and purity and holiness, they had, they had pure speech, gracious speech. And they were before kings. And even... The, the kings went to bat for them, so to speak. Stood up for them. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're, we're to have no corrupting talk. And, and, you know, that as he says corrupting, you know, I think of the corruption of the fall. Nothing that tears down, nothing that corrupts, nothing that promotes sin or evil should come out of our mouths, but only that, only that which is edifying, which is good for building up, which gives grace to those who hear. You know, it's, it's easy to be cynical. 
and to be critical, especially in our workplace, especially when people all around us are being cynical and critical. It's, it's easy, easy to go along with the flow, but we need to discipline ourselves to not be like that for the sake of our witness. Yeah, I've shared this before, and some of you have probably shared it before, that um, there's been times um, in, in my own work history where um, just because I didn't complain, someone said, I notice you don't complain. And though it didn't come out of my mouth, it still was in my heart. Um, but nonetheless, it was an impact. We should be the type of people that we don't complain. We're not cynical. We're not gossipers. We're not tearing other people down. We're not lazy. We're wise. We're gracious in our speech. We're people of character. One commentator, he writes this. He says, Christians are to speak what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful, seasoned with salt. Just as salt not only flavors, but prevents corruption, the Christian speech should act not only as a blessing to others, but as a purifying influence within the decaying society of the world. We are to be those type of people. And it should show in our speech. We are to speak graciously with everyone. We speak graciously in purity and pleasantry. And third, we are to speak graciously by being considerate and circumspect. By being considerate and circumspect. He ends verse 6 by saying, So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You need to be considerate about the people around you. You need to walk circumspectly, discerning, understanding, seeking to understand people. Your, your evangelism in those times in which you do um, strike up enough courage and, and the opportunity presents itself and, and you do evangelize and you do witness, your evangelism should not be scripted. But it should be tailored to each individual as you interact with them. And I know there's, there's several evangelism training programs, such as the Way of the Master, that, that in a sense teach a script, and, and, um, and it, it is good, it is a good method, but it's one method, it's one way. And because we're creatures of habit, and we find a way that works for one person, we tend to just use it for everybody else. But that's not always the case. We need to be considerate and circumspect, and we need to tailor our evangelism to each person. And, and this is, you know, this is the example of Jesus. You look at his evangelism, and yes, Jesus is Lord. He is God. He, he um, has um, something uh, over us that is uh, uh, his divinity, um, but nonetheless, he is our example. And we see him with the Samaritan woman, and how he was gracious, and he was... Um, patient with her and he had the right word at the right time and, and we see a difference in his interactions with the rich young ruler or with the Pharisees he tailored his evangelism to each person in each situation and sometimes yes we need to be bold and speak hard truths and sometimes we need to be extremely gracious extremely compassionate extremely patient with somebody but Whatever the case may be, we need to listen to people. We need to listen to them. We need to seek to understand them. 
ask questions and dialogue with them. There, there, there should be a dialogue. You know, I, I've done uh, quite a bit of evangelism, not, not so much that I can boast, but enough that I know a little bit about it. And um, I remember um, when, when I was a member at Grace Community Church, a, a big church in L.A. where John MacArthur pastors, I remember their um, neighborhood outreach. They go out door to door every Sunday after church, and I would go out as much as I could. And I, I remember doing door-to-door evangelism and, and doing door-to-door, there's always this fear that um, they will uh, shut down the conversation quick and shut the door on you. And so because of that, I remember I, I just got into this routine of just trying to get the gospel out as much as I can, trying to get out as much as I can before they shut the door. So I'm afraid they're going to shut the door on me, so I got to get out as much as I can. And I got into this routine of just um, not door-to-door evangelism, but door-to-door preaching. <laughs> and, so, and so I remember going to one, one door and the, the guy, um, he answers and, and, and it's just, I, I'm not even waiting. I, I think I asked one question and he said something and then I just jumped into preaching the gospel and I was preaching and, and I was going and then all of a sudden I stopped and he's like, you're pretty good at that. Have you ever thought of becoming a preacher? And I was like, well, um, but there was no questions, there was no dialogue, there was no, what do you think? And he was just, it was a performance. It was a performance. And I don't know what stuck, or if anything stuck at all. I handed him some tracks. I, I did ask him some questions, but I came away convicted. It's like, I just went there and did a drive-by sermon. <laughs> and I hope something stuck, but there should be a dialogue. And, you know, we need to be patient. We need to be patient. Proverbs 15.23 says, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season how good it is. You need to speak wisely, graciously, compassionate, be patient, ask questions, seek to understand. Proverbs 25.11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And, and that's... You know, for some of us, we, we stumble over our words. We put our foot in our mouth all the time. But you know what? You, you need to be humble enough to be okay with failing. We need to strive to be wise and gracious and compassionate in our speech. But we need to be humble enough to be okay with failing. Evangelism is like everything else you do. You're probably going to fail a lot of times before you start getting good at it. No one just jumps up on the piano over there and just, I've never played in my life. And they play some, you know, concerto from Bach or Mozart. No one, but with evangelism, we, we think, well, if I'm not good at it, then, well, I just, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Be humble enough to be okay with failing. Famous um, evangelist D.L. Moody said to the woman, um, there was a, a woman told him, she said, um, you're doing it wrong. And he said, I prefer the wrong way I'm doing it to the right way you're not. <laughs> and and there's, there's some truth in that. There are wrong and right ways to do evangelism. But the bottom line is we must do it. We must do it. And we, we, can't, we shouldn't be critical of other people. You're not doing it right. Well, you know what? Why don't you get, get out there and start doing it? You know, fail a little bit. And finally, we need to... We need to actually care about other people. Actually care about the person we're proclaiming the gospel to. They're a lost sinner. 
they're, they're under the wrath of God. If they die, they will suffer eternal torment in the flames of hell. We need to have compassion on them. We need to care about them and care enough to listen, to be patient, to answer all their questions and show that compassion to them. You know, and they should go away. You know, even if they say, you know, I don't believe anything that person says, they're crazy, but I can tell that there is some compassion there. There's some compassion there. You know, there's this um, famous, um, I think they're kind of like a, a magic act, a comedians, Penn and Teller, if you've heard of them. Well, they're both avowed atheists. But the one guy, his last name's Penn, he said, um, he said this about evangelism. It's interesting. You can look this up. He said, he said um, I don't respect anybody who doesn't proselytize, who doesn't go out to evangelize. He says, um, you know, I remember he's like, there's a guy that came up to me in a casino or whatever. He, he came and he was a very honest, sincere, genuine man. And he just really wanted me to know about Jesus. He gave me a Bible and he's like, he's like, and I don't believe anything he believes. But I could tell he believed it. And he wanted me to believe. And he cared enough to tell me. And he goes on to say, he says, how evil do you have to be to believe in a literal hell that people will be cast into hell forever if they do not repent and believe? And I'm paraphrasing. How evil do you have to be to sincerely believe that and not tell anybody about it? You think about that. This is an unbeliever saying this, an avowed atheist. And logically, he gets it. But we don't do it because our evangelism is hard and because we don't want opposition, because we want everybody to like us. It's the fear of man. And Paul helps us in that first by telling us to continue steadfastly in prayer, to pray always, to pray for him, to pray for anybody who preaches the gospel. And then he tells us in these two verses to walk in wisdom, to walk wisely, and to speak graciously. To speak graciously. Those two things will help us in our evangelism, to walk wisely and to speak graciously, to care for other people. J.C. Ryle wrote this concerning this passage. He says, The speech is always with grace, seasoned with salt. The perfection of our Lord's conduct appears on this as on all other occasions. He always said the right thing at the right time and in the right way. He never forgot for a moment who he was and where he was. The example of Christ in this passage deserves the close attention of all Christians. We're to be gracious. We're to be wise. We're to be kind. But we're to speak the truth in love. We must speak truth and we must do it in love. Jesus was a friend of sinners and he came to seek and to save those who are lost. And we must do the same. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says this, in the midst of persecution. He's, he's writing to believers who, being, or who are being persecuted. And he writes to tell them how they are to suffer well, how they are to suffer faithfully. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Respect even for the most hostile unbeliever because they're made in the image of God. Uh, yeah, even Jesus said, do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls to swine. And, and there are some unbelievers that are so hostile that it's not worth your time, at least in that moment. You have to figure out when a right time is. Um, but we still need to show them a bit of dignity as image bearers, as those who are under the condemnation of God, have compassion on them. And we need to be ready to give a defense for the reason for the hope that is within us. Sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. Understanding and, and viewing Him as holy. But if we are to give a defense for anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, that raises a question, do you have this hope in you? And do you understand the hope that is in you if you do have it? This hope of eternal life, this hope of being forgiven of all your sins, this hope of heaven, this hope of divine forgiveness, that you have escaped the wrath of God by the grace of God. Do you have this hope in you? A key indicator of whether or not you have this hope in you is whether or not you desire to share that with others. Whether you fail or not, whether you stumble, whether it's hard, do you have this desire that other people would have the same hope? Do you understand the hope that is in you? And if you don't understand this hope, you need to examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Do you know what will happen to you after you die? Are you ready to die? Do you have this hope of, of having your sins forgiven completely? Because one time somebody told you about this gospel. Someone shared the gospel to you. Remember one of the, the greatest evangelists I have known personally he didn't have a big ministry, he, didn't, wasn't, he just was known within our, our church. But he said, you know, he was working one day, he was from Africa, came to the United States to try to get rich. And he was working some day and, and some guy just came, as some security guard came over and shared the gospel with him. And from that point on, he got saved, from that point on, he went out and shared it. He said, this guy didn't know me at all. He had no reason to share, but he came because this is important. And he shared the gospel with me. And because he shared the gospel with me, I am saved. I will not experience hell. I will not experience the wrath of God. All my sins are forgiven because this man had enough guts and enough compassion to share the gospel with me. So that's why I go out and I share the gospel with others. Because someone shared it with me. And I'm saved because of that. How will they hear unless there is a preacher? We must preach. This is why we're here. This is the purpose of the whole church. 
It's why we exist. Jesus, he says, the Great Commission, before he ascended into heaven, he says this, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That means I'm telling you what to do. I have all authority. No one else can tell you likewise. And then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, the emphasis is on making disciples and teaching them, but that begins with evangelism. That begins with proclaiming the gospel. They must be converted and we must preach the gospel so that they will be converted. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I say, go. And that, therefore, no other authority can tell you not to share the gospel. Yes, there are times in our workplaces, in the places we go, where it might not be wise at this time. But we don't have to listen to somebody who says, um, you can't do that. You can't share the gospel. You can't proclaim that. Not here. Not your Jesus. I don't want to hear it. We don't have to listen to them. Now, there may be repercussions to not listening to them and going ahead and preaching the gospel, but Jesus says that we can preach the gospel anywhere, and we are to do that and make disciples anywhere. And he ends that command with, I am with you always. Even to the end. He is with us. He goes with us. Whenever he commands us to do something, he goes with us. He gives us the power. He gives us the energy. He gives us the strength. He gives us the wisdom. And therefore, we must go in faith and proclaim this gospel. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know how weak we are. You know how foolish we are. You know all the excuses we give. You know how we stumble in so many ways. That's why Paul tells the believers to pray. And this is why we need to pray because we need strength, we need wisdom, we need energy, we need boldness, we need motivation. We, we can't do this without you. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, please help us to proclaim Christ. Please help us to be all about the gospel, to, to put the gospel as the highest priority in our Christian lives. We, we can... We can have good marriages and, and we can um, be good stewards of our finances and ha have good families and, and all that is good and right and even commanded by you, but there are unbelievers who have all that and who are going to hell. Help us to major on the majors. Help us to proclaim your gospel until you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.